Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. We have to become the unwelcome guests at the dinner party, and we have to call people out. And we can't just call them out about racism and accept their anti-Semitism. We can't just call them out on anti-Semitism and accept their racism. That's Professor Deborah Lipstadt nearly three years ago when I had the privilege of interviewing her on this podcast shortly after the release of her book, Anti-Semitism Here and Now. Professor Lipstadt is now Ambassador Lipstadt, the U.S. State Department's special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism. In recent weeks, Ambassador Lipstadt has made official visits to Saudi Arabia ahead of President Biden's visit there and to Buenos Aires, where she paid tribute to the 85 lives lost and 300 wounded in a terrorist attack at the Jewish Community Center there 28 years ago. At the memorial ceremony, she bemoaned the lack of accountability that Iran and Hezbollah have faced as the perpetrators of that attack. Ambassador Lipstadt recently joined her European Union counterpart, Katerina von Schnurbein, at AJC Global Forum. Here is a portion of that conversation with AJC Europe General Manager, Simone Rodin Benzaken. Katerina, you have been an incredible voice against anti-Semitism, an actor against anti-Semitism. Um, and I'm not sure that some of the progress that we have collectively been making in Europe over the past uh, years would have been possible without you. I want to be very, very clear on that. When you look at the future, though, at what is still left to be accomplished, what is it that you want and what is it what keeps you up at night? When I started uh, this this job uh, six years ago, I really didn't know what I was getting into. I mean, we had seen lethal attacks in Europe on Jewish communities, but really starting to meet with the Jewish communities across Europe and, um, and being in close touch showed how afraid in the end they were. My wish is um, to ensure that Jews in Europe see a future for themselves, for their children and their grandchildren in Europe. And we must do everything it takes to do that. It is in this spirit that last uh, October, for the first time, we put forward a strategy for the EU where really the aspect of fostering Jewish life is at the heart. So of course we have to fight anti-Semitism, we have to prevent it, you know, and these aspects are important. But ensuring that Jews can go about their lives in line with their religious and cultural traditions, which means, for example, uh, not to have discussions about Shrita, not to have uh, discussions about banning Brit Milah, and to ensure that we can find a political consensus um, uh, on this is, is really the next step because a lot has happened. There is a lot of progress um, in recognizing anti-Semitism, in making it visible in action from governments and from the EU. But it's not enough. Deborah, let me ask you the same question. Um, you're, you just arrived <laughs> in your position, but what, what does keep you up at night? Um, what, what is it that you really I think are a working? number of things. First of all, 
the failure of so many people to take anti-Semitism seriously. You know, the sort of, what are they complaining about there? In this beautiful sanctuary, people with power, people with accomplishments, what are they complaining about? And of course the answer is, I don't have to belabor it with this audience, is that we may not appear, not all of us, but many of us may not appear as traditional victims of prejudice, but we know things can change on a dime. And we also know that anti-Semitism, while a prejudice like other prejudices, has unique characteristic, the unique characteristic of being a conspiracy theory. So things can change and can change subtly. And yet there are so many people, organizations, institutions, universities, that just don't see it as a problem. And if anything, they think Jews are just rushing to get into the victim game. You know, they just, the, the victims, as this is derisively called, I hate to even say it, but the victim Olympics, you know, they just want that. And we know that that's not true. I mean, one example, think back to Weimar. We, none of us here are that old, but Weimar, Germany, the interwar governmental uh, Germany, democratic, Jews thrived and how quickly things changed. I'm not saying I'm expecting it to change in that same way, but what I'm saying is things can change easily. So one of the things is the failure to take it seriously. And that really terribly disturbs me. The other thing that disturbs me, and this part is my American perspective, but I think it also applies outside the world, is the failure to recognize, and Alan mentioned in his introduction about the Buffalo Killer and his so-called manifesto. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's an insult to manifestos to call <laughs> that a manifesto, but not that I'm a great Very fan true. of manifestos, but that, you know, that's a, a rabbit hole I'm gonna go down. Certainly when it comes to racism, not only, but certainly when it comes to racism, anti-Semitism and racism are not contiguous hatreds, they're linked. Many of you know that I was an expert witness at the civil trial in the Charlottesville case, you know, the Unite the Right case. My report is available on the web at Integrity First for America. And what was so clear, you all remember on that first night when they chanted, Jews will not replace us. My phone was ringing off the hook. It doesn't have a hook anymore, but so to speak. Kids don't know what it means, you know, when they say that. Um, put a kid in front of the dial phone, they don't know what to do. But in any case, I had to explain to them replacement theory. Not just as it emerges from France in the recent years, but going way back. Jews at the secret cabal, it goes back to the protocols of the elders of Zion. Those elders sitting in a room in Switzerland, you know, conniving and using others to accomplish their goals. And it makes me very sad that when it comes again, now I'm talking from an American perspective and my remit is really outside the boundaries of the United States, but this isn't, I think you would see it in Europe as well, maybe in a different kind of way, the feeling that there's only so much bandwidth of sympathy. And if I'm talking about a racism and, and someone says an anti-Semitism, that's the bandwidth of sympathy for my particular group. And my argument is the exact opposite, and I think Katerina shares it as well, is that 
it's not that there's a limited bandwidth of sympathy. If you're going to take these hatreds, in this case specifically anti-Semitism, seriously, you have to recognize that they're part of a, the warp and the woof of hatreds. It's not to diminish the attention to one, but it's to say it starts, and we just say this, it may start with the Jews, it never ends with the Jews, and now we see it the other way. It may start with other groups, but it's going to end with the Jews. So that inclusiveness, that disturbs me terribly. And the failure to really understand, I mean, it sounds so ridiculous. You know, I know it when I see it, but that's not a good enough answer how many people don't really understand. You see this in your work all the time. Don't really understand what anti, oh, I was just joking, oh, so, you know, thin-skinned or whatever. But failure to take it seriously and failure to recognize how interconnected it is with other hatreds. And this even predates replacement theory, but it's certainly now that we see with white supremacy and white Christian nationalism. Sure, go ahead. Um, if I may add something there, I think um, what we see increasingly is that anti-Semitism comes really from the center of society. And we have for a long time placed it into the extremes, extreme right, you know, Muslim extremism, extreme left, all in different expressions, usually Islamism and far right being very ready for violence, the left slightly less. All three of them, of course, can agree if they don't like each other among themselves, but they can agree that the Jew is the enemy. And the real thing, I think, however, and that's so difficult to tackle, is this anti-Semitism that is in the middle of society and that we have seen surface in the pandemic to the streets. So if you have uh, teachers wearing a yellow star of David saying unvaccinated, it's not an extremist. It's people who have lost compass and have this prejudice or lack also of understanding of the Holocaust and of what it means to distort the Holocaust and to trivialize the Holocaust. And now it expresses itself on the street. And then you have these casual remarks at work. You know, I mean, don't you want to pay the bill because you've got the money? And it's very common, unfortunately, in Europe, you know, to have these myths and very internalized, and they came out in the pandemic. I mean, we've seen this explosion of anti-Semitic content during the pandemic, now with the war in Ukraine and the propaganda coming from Russia, really misusing and using the terms around also the Holocaust and Nazis and genocide, you know. We made a study or like a survey there was a 200-fold increase of the word Nazi coming out of Kremlin sources in the months already before, and a 400-fold increase of the word genocide. So this is systematically prepared, and we see it now coming up through the web, but also obviously through action. Let Simone will give you a hard time here, but... <laughs> no, it's okay, it's okay. <laughs> but Katarina made two points here, the, the casual, like a student once came into my office and she was very distressed and I said, you know, and she, can I talk to you about something slightly personal? I said, sure. And she's, she was in a suite with uh, three or four other women and they'd been randomly placed together their freshman year, but they had chosen to stay together for subsequent semesters. I'll give those of you with who have children or grandchildren or whatever you remember, they gave up better housing in order to guarantee their being together. So if you know the college campus, you know that's a big thing. 
And I said, so what's the problem? She said, well, we were talking about what people were going to do during the break. And someone said, well, are you going skiing with your family? Are you going to go to someplace warm with your family or something? She said, I'm on work study. I'm the only Jew in the group, and I'm the only one on work study, meaning a form of, of scholarship. And she said, my family hasn't taken a vacation since my older siblings started to go to college. You know, maybe we go away for a weekend, maybe, you know? And there was this assumption... This person who knew otherwise, there was assumption about them. So I told this to someone, said, well, that's not so bad. I said, but that's how it starts. That's how it starts. You get everything from the Kremlin leadership using overtly anti-Semitic, I mean, the idea that Hitler's mother was Jewish. Now, not only is it historically absurd, but what is he saying when he says that? Hitler's mother was Jewish, ipso facto Hitler was Jewish, so the Jews did it to themselves. There's deeper implications. So, you know, you see this range of animosities. So actually, so you spoke about the different forms of anti-Semitism, about the fact that it is now indeed in the center of uh, society. And by the way, uh, we, we clearly see it also in, in our AJC surveys that we've done in the United States, but also in Europe, in France and Germany, just very recently. But when I look at Europe, One of the difficulties AJC and others we have experienced, nevertheless, was first to get government leaders to acknowledge anti-Semitism in the first place. That was sort of the first decade, let's put it that way. And the second decade, in particular in Western Europe, was that it was difficult to get European leaders to understand and speak about anti-Semitism coming from within another minority group that itself is suffering from racism um, and discrimination. So what have you learned, Katarina, about this? How can we address this new form of anti-Semitism and how can we make sure that it's not being weaponized politically? Because that is obviously always a danger. Well, for us, there were two things very important. We said every form of anti-Semitism is equally pernicious and no matter where it comes from. So, you know, that in connection with the so-called IRA definition, which doesn't have to tell you anything, but if it does, it's a definition that looks at the different forms of contemporary anti-Semitism in examples from the racist to the uh, religious to the myths and Holocaust denial and also Israel-related anti-Semitism. And to have this as a basis was really key for governments to acknowledge that what we know from surveys as well the vast majority of Jews sees as anti-Semitic is acknowledged as such. Because we would do this usually for other groups. We ask them, so what do you see as a discrimination or an insult? And we would use that as a basis. But when it comes to the Jewish community, we're always, yeah, but you know, Israel or the Holocaust. So this we made clear is unacceptable. So we talk about European Jews who are European citizens. They have a relationship with Israel in most cases, but whatever they are and wherever they feel threatened or discriminated against is as a European citizen and it's simply unacceptable. It wasn't easy and we are not there yet. I mean, you know, the discussion continues, but nowadays we have a much greater acknowledgement, and unfortunately also because anti-Semitism is on the rise despite all the action. You know, the chief rabbi of Italy, he once 
greeted me coming into the room saying, since you've been appointed, anti-Semitism has exploded. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, there, there is really a, a lot... I'm glad I didn't make that introduction. But, uh, <laughs> uh, the acknowledgement from states is definitely increasing. And I think, though, one aspect I've learned is when you get politicians really to act, when they understand that it's not just a threat against the Jews. It is a threat against our democracy, against our values, against liberty, you know, against our freedoms. When this is understood, then action starts and then things turn around. We may like it or not, huh? but I think this is the reality. This is how we have seen it in the Council of the European Commission, where we have had three declarations now against anti-Semitism by unanimity by all 27 EU member states. So there is a lot of, I think, movement going on and member states and politicians in the EU are definitely more aware. Thinking strategically and not just situationally, what's in your mind the best way of fighting anti-Semitism? And maybe I'll start with you, Katarina. She's been on the job longer, so... <laughs> exactly. You've analysed it all. <laughs> no, but I think coming from what Deborah just said about how democratic structures are weakened by this conspiracy myths and the thinking around it, we need to strengthen democratic institutions. And this is also why sometimes fighting anti-Semitism is very difficult because, you know, we address the symptoms, but the root really is to strengthen democracy and to strengthen the institutions. That, for example, means very concretely, if there are issues with slaughtering where we have an issue in some countries that, you know, there is illegal slaughtering happening, rather than banning it, you need to have state authorities going there and saying, what you did is unlawful, here is your fine, and now go to a slaughterhouse and slaughter correctly. And as long, however, as we basically backtrack and the state then gives up and says, okay, we cannot control it, so we better ban it, this is one important aspect. And then, of course, the, the recognition, the understanding of how anti-Semitism plays out, and in particular also in Europe, anti-Zionism and Israel-related anti-Semitism, how it is totally unacceptable to have demonstrations in front of synagogues when there is a Gaza crisis going on, and to shout in front of synagogues death to the Jews. That is unacceptable in any case. But to make this constant link is also problematic. And if the police then does not see this, or sometimes the police sees it, but the state prosecutor doesn't, that means we need to go through the structures and we need a long breath. I know we don't have the time, but we still need to systematically go into training for state prosecution, for police. We need to be able to really make them understand how anti-Semitism is expressed today. And the third aspect, I believe, is really the internet. It's the number one entry door into our living rooms when it comes to hatred and anti-Semitism. So, as I know the situation is different here in the States, but in the EU, we have now created legislation to ensure that platforms have to make their algorithms transparent, that they have to take down illegal hate speech, which is illegal according to European legislation, that they have to have better redress mechanisms, and they can be fined if they do not comply. So this is legislation with teeth, and we think that a highway of data needs to have rules 
and therefore the aspect of really having clear boundaries for what can be said in the internet and really making the internet again a place where we all want to be. You know, we have sort of come to a situation where we, we don't agree, but we give up on saying, well, a certain amount of hatred always surrounds my Twitter account. But why? We would not want this in the real world. And what is illegal in Europe, again, in the real world, is also illegal online. So it needs to be prosecuted. These are aspects that, you know, if we really crack down on these, there is a chance that we push back. Again, just to add commentary, because some of you may not be fully familiar on the shkito, on the ritual slaughter issue, and the Brit Mila, the circumcision issue, that there are countries, and Katerina has been dealing with this on the front line with her team, but there are a number of countries in Europe which are thinking of banning it. Totally. Now, you could say, okay, ban ritual slaughter, you have to, if you're going to eat, if you're going to be a, a carnivore, you just have to pay more for your beef or something. But if you ban Brit Mila, if you ban circumcision, you can't take a baby who's seven days old, so on the eighth day he'll be in a country where they allow circumcision. You're essentially saying you can't live here as Jews. And at the same time, these are countries that proclaim freedom of religion. So what was it? I forget which community you mentioned to me that said when this was being discussed, was it Denmark that you, you rescued, some of the Jews there said, you know, offhand, you, you rescued us in 43 and now you're banning us in 2022-3. Now, sometimes it starts as an anti-Muslim thing, but it affects the ability to live and yet you proclaim yourself as freedom of religion. But let me ask you that same question. What is it in the next few years that you have ahead of you? What is it that you want to accomplish? And what is the best approach to fighting, you know, anti-Semitism? At heart, I'm an educator. So I want people to try to get to understand what I said earlier about what it is and to take it seriously. But I also am so encouraged. I know there is some good news. You, don't, you came to a session on anti-Semitism and you heard good news. What's wrong with that? But there is good news. There are people like Katarina. We're going from here to the United States mission at the UN where I'm hosting a meeting of a number of the special envoys including newly appointed, who's here at a different session, envoy from the Organization of American States. Other countries are talking about appointing special envoys. That means they're taking it seriously. So, and I want to figure out, we all want to figure out, I mean, I'm convening the meeting, but we're all coming with the same agenda. How can we work together? How can we be a force multiplier? So I think that that's exceptionally important. The other thing that I hope to work on, the other piece of good news is the Abraham Accords, which the State Department under Secretary Blinken, Biden-Harris administration is building on with great, great vigor and to work with some of these countries which have been in the past purveyors of anti-Semitism or look the other wayers of anti-Semitism. How can we turn this around? How can we change that? So I'll be putting out, or trying to put out fires or calling attention to fires, but I also hope to create this, um, help create, it's already, it's not a new idea. My uh, colleagues and other special envoys have been working together. They just met together in Jerusalem. But how can we regularize this? How can we be a force multiplier? And then also building on the Abraham Accords. Thank you very much. I think, I think you will 
all agree that uh, while the situation is serious on both sides of the Atlantic now and in the United States that um, we are concerned, that we are, of course, as AJC, as an advocacy organization, continues to be very committed in fighting anti-Semitism. But I think you will all agree that we are also particularly lucky to have two so thoughtful, smart educators, but also fighters and uh, doers, because, uh, you know, analyzing, talking is interesting, but what is much more important these days is to actually walk the walk. Uh, so thank you very much. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to listen to my conversation with retired Ambassador Mark Sievers, director of AJC Abu Dhabi, about the possible outcomes from President Biden's visit to the Middle East. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.